Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Words and Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Amy Noyakas, founder and CEO of Anthemis, a venture capital firm founded in 2008 that aims to cultivate change in the financial system. Some of their most notable investments include Carta, Betterment, Pipe, Rally Road, Simple, and Backstage Capital. In this great conversation, we talk about Amy's journey and how she found herself making her first VC investments in Cameroon in the early 90s as a college student, navigating Wall Street, and why she eventually decided to leave big banks to launch Anthemis, fundraising in 2008, a year when the financial industry collapsed, but also a year that saw major technological breakthroughs, why they looked to back entrepreneurs with digital business models that aim to transform and create resiliency inside of our financial system, their commitment to build the most diverse and inclusive team in tech and Wall Street, and why they launched the Female Innovators Lab along with Barclays, Anthemis Venture Studio Strategy, and why Amy has seen a great increase in the speed of companies going from pre-seed to seed, fundraising reflections and leadership lessons as a VC founder, and just a whole lot more. And now please join me in a wonderful conversation with Amy Noyakas. Well, Amy, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Uh, really excited to have you. And in fact, this is your more than second or third appearance on the podcast, <laughs> right? So, you know, you're a recurring guest and obviously we love talking to you. That's why you keep coming back. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Where are you calling us from today? I am in Lower Manhattan. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, and New York is back, right? I think so. I think so. It's still, I, it's finding its footing, right? I mean, I feel like it's still not entirely sure what it wants to be when it grows out of this new world, but, um, feels very, there's parts of it and, and moments that feel very reminiscent of when I first moved to New York in the early 90s. And, and that's been nice to see. Um, but I, I think we need a little bit more time to really figure out where it's going. Um, but I, I think the energy is back um, and it definitely feels more alive than it has in a very long time. Absolutely. I, I can agree with that as a, as a fellow neighbor, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Amy, uh, you know, last time we, we heard from you on the podcast, we didn't hear a lot from you because you were actually having a conversation with Asia Bradley from First Boulevard, and that was right. as part of the Wharton Fintech Conference. So let's turn things around and let's actually hear from you, right? Uh, maybe, maybe start from the beginning and tell us about, about your background. <laughs> the beginning, let's see how far we, do we want to go back. Um, well, let's see. I, you know, I think I, I found my way to um, financial services a little bit kind of you know, not in, in the direct line that perhaps a lot of folks um, choose a career in financial services. I had grown up in a small town in Connecticut. My parents were, my father was first generation American. We had a wonderful opportunity to live an area in a community where my grandparents and my great grandparents had land, which gave me an opportunity to go to a relatively decent school and sort of 
education was always a big priority for my family. And I think in large part because they weren't, they didn't have access to it. Um, and so I went off to college, um, small private liberal arts college in, in Pennsylvania. And for whatever reason, I became slightly obsessed with two things in before college, the idea of learning everything I possibly could and studying physically in sub-Saharan Africa. And I became um, one of the first international studies majors at Dickinson College to carve out a geographic focus on sub-Saharan Africa as my area of focus. And so as such, I you know, went, went in with full expectation of going in, and living and working and, and studying in a program on the continent, um, but the school didn't have a program. So I looked at a handful of the ones that were on option um, and got a really great uh, sponsorship from one of the professors at the college that enabled me to actually carve out a study abroad program for Dickinson um, in Cameroon, Western Central Africa. And so I went out uh, in sort of the early part of 1992 as one of the first students from Dickinson to, to study there. Fortunately and unfortunately, there wasn't really a lot of formality around the program. And when I arrived, it was just on the eve of the first multi-party election for the country that they had ever had, which didn't go as well as uh, they had anticipated. And so there was a lot of upheaval and sort of questions about, you know, whether or not I could stay there, uh, if what, whether it would be safe. Um, and I just decided to stick in. And so I had this wonderful, wonderful kind of moment where I realized that there were not going to be any classes. <laughs> um, there was not going to be anything for me to study. And I had to figure out what to do with myself. Um, and so I marched into the U.S. Peace Corps office, um, which was a big part of what I was studying in college, economic development, and uh, specifically economic development on the continent. And started to work in what now I know is project finance, right? At the time, it was given a job to find money for Peace Corps volunteers who were leaving the country but wanted to continue their work um, outside of the U.S. Peace Corps system. And so I was going and raising money from various different charities and, and not-for-profits and U.S. government agencies to try to support some of these programs. And, and it was sort of you know based on kind of here's a project, here's an idea, and here's the volunteer that wants to do it. Will you give us money to back it? And I realized now <laughs> that that was sort of venture capital, right? I mean, in many ways, it was funding ideas uh, and individuals to, you know, build something um, that didn't exist. And I, I really always thought that I would go um, a real more kind of traditional route of economic development. But when I left Cameroon and I left that job at the Peace Corps, it was really clear to me that my personality wasn't very well suited for sort of the kind of intergovernmental <laughs> um, sort of red tape and, and structure that sort of, you know, happens when you're when you're working and living in economic development centers. And, and so I just thought, well, you know, I've got to figure something out because now I'm graduating. I don't, I have a ton of student debt <laughs> and I don't know what I'm going to do next. And somehow there was something about that project finance project that made me feel like this is something that I, you know, really don't know much about. I know nothing about finance. I had taken, I think, one accounting class in school and that was it. And so I just used my wonderful opportunity to leverage into the recruiting process with a lot of banks and financial services organizations. And, and it wasn't because I had this big dream to work on Wall Street. It was because I, I really did want to change the world. That was my goal. And I knew I wasn't going to do it without a network or skills that would allow me to do so. And so it felt to me that the most logical way to build both of those things um, was to go work on Wall Street. And so I marched into my my uh, college recruiter's office and said, I, I'd like to apply for all the banking jobs. And she kind of laughed at me and said, well, that doesn't, you don't have any experience or skills for that. And it was a really wonderful time in the early 90s where a lot of the bank training programs actually looked for liberal arts grads with very different backgrounds. Um, and it was, you know, a kind of a crack in an otherwise fairly 
routineized system of how people get recruited for these bank jobs, et cetera, that I kind of slid into. And I, I interviewed really well because I had something to talk about that was different than what everybody else was talking about. I didn't look like the traditional banker. I probably didn't speak like the traditional banker. I certainly didn't have the pedigree of the traditional banker. Um, and I was very, very lucky to have found somebody who who thought that's what the bank needed. And so I entered an analyst M&A program at um, Bankers Trust. And that was sort of how I got started. That's amazing. And you know, you, you mentioned financing infrastructure. I, I did that as well I did it for Latin America. And I always found that as one of the most rewarding segments of finance because it's actually very tangible, right? And you're, you're helping build actually core infrastructure for communities. That's right. Um, that's amazing. And, and so you were at Cantor Fitzgerald, you rose through the ranks, then you're also at, at Barclays. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you decided to actually switch to a different segment of, of finance, right? And then you went the venture capital route. Why make the switch? Yeah, well, it was it was actually less of a switch. I mean, the VC switch was certainly a pivot in 2007, 2008, when I met my partner, Sean Park. But really what was, you know, kind of interesting about my journey in financial services is while I started in kind of your traditional, you know, analyst program, I had this really great appreciation for the fact that I didn't feel like I fit in for a whole host of reasons, right? And and a big part of that was the fact that in the early 90s, there weren't a lot of women on Wall Street and certainly not a lot that were, um, you know, getting professionally promoted and and various other kind of opportunities. And and I think that I I just didn't feel like I knew I needed to be, and it's advice I give to people all the time um, as they're starting their careers, is that you you have to be true to who you are, and sometimes in doing so, that's going to create the biggest opportunities for you. And for me, because I didn't feel that I fit into the more traditional mold of being a baby banker and doing X, Y, and Z, and then getting here and there, um, I really felt it was important for me to sort of find my path on Wall Street that was a little different than what other people were doing. And so that's why now I can kind of earnestly say that I was doing fintech before it was a thing and certainly before it was as cool as it is today. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that fintech very much did exist in the 90s and even before that. You know, my first fintech kind of tour, so to speak, was when I was working at Bear Stearns and I was working uh, with the, the various different trading departments to try to understand how to allocate capital and support some of these new trading platforms that were coming out. So the Bloomberg Tradebook, Market Access, all these big kind of platforms that have now market, right, have all become sort of these massive um, behemoths of themselves. But at the time, it was a very new way to use technology to interact with customers. And so that was sort of how I started and then got recruited from Cantor to come and help launch their online bond program, and then eventually got recruited by Barclays to build their electronic sales and trading business, uh, and then eventually their retail um, online brokerage business. So so it was sort of a kind of, because I wanted to do something different than what everybody else was doing, and because I was doing something that nobody else cared about, you know, that was not the sexy part of banking. It was the part that nobody knew what to do with. Um, and that's really how I kind of built this sort of throughput of fintech into my career. And then in 2007, 2008, um, when Sean and I met, we actually had this great, great moment um, of meeting when he was working at Dresner and getting rid of some of the technology that they'd had as they were winding down their digital markets business. And I was working at Barclays and and for my sins, had sort of the, the responsibility for a lot of the strategic investments at the bank that were in technology. And I was looking to, to potentially buy this. And, and I could tell by the way he was positioning it that it wasn't a fantastically great piece of technology, but I also knew that he probably had a job to do to sell it. <laughs> And so I kept asking really, you know, poignant questions as you do as now that I know is when you sort of meet with an entrepreneur and he and he just kind of paused and said, Amy, 
please don't buy this piece of crap. And I laughed and I said, well, that's what I was waiting for, for you to tell. I could tell it was a, a stinker, but I was waiting for you to own it. And then that was a sort of great break the ice moment where we got to talk and he kind of laughed and said, gee, I feel like, you know, after all these years of knowing one another in the markets, we really haven't properly, you know, met. And, and you know, it's kind of great to make your acquaintance. And he, he referred to me as, um, I don't know if you know that TV show Seinfeld, aging myself, hopefully. No, of course, of course. There's a character on Seinfeld, um, Newman, who was Steinfeld's nemesis, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, Sean had been blogging and writing and, you know, you know, positioning himself in this kind of early fintech space that nobody was paying any attention to very, very early on with some brilliant ideas. And he said, I feel like I have all these great ideas. And every time I turn around and get ready to do one, you're there and you've already done it. And it's like, you're Newman. There he is right there when, right, just when you don't want him to be. And I laughed at him and I said, Sean, all I'm doing is reading the stuff that you're writing and putting out and just executing it faster than you are. <laughs> you know, all of these are your ideas. And, and it was at that moment we realized, oh, maybe there's something in this and we can probably work together. And it was, a, you know, it was an interesting time, right? 2008 was the, the launch of the smartphone. And we have this supercomputer in our pockets. And we've got all these massive, big purveyors of capital markets and various, not even paying attention to it. And our jobs would often be very frustrating because we would, you know, we basically walked around with a bunch of spreadsheets and PowerPoints trying to explain to them how everything was going to fall apart and nobody cared. And it was a really kind of frustrating moment, but I think it became more frustrating when we realized how much opportunity we're missing. It was also a moment where none of the private equity firms were really focused on fintech as a subsector. And so we thought that gave us a unique position to maybe, you know, play a role where we could at the very early stage of Anthemis sit between the big banks, insurance companies, the brokerage houses, and the private equity to be almost like the guide between the two so that we could help uncover, unpack, and understand the trends that was, you know, forced to, to digitize these markets in a way that actually was an insider's view, right? So we were kind of insiders and outsiders at the same time. Yeah. And that was sort of the the premise for our, our kind of first part of our, our thesis for Anthemus was that, you know, if we're ever going to do this, now's the time, right? The markets are in complete turmoil. We actually decide, I think it was like in the spring of 2008 to do it. And then our first day where we were um, actually out trying to properly fundraise for Anthemus was the Monday after Lehman collapsed. Um, so you can imagine it wasn't a fantastic way to start, you know, venture capital investment platform or really any company. But I think that, you know, that in itself was actually a very um, serendipitous moment for us. Yeah, talk about timing. <laughs> and so sounds like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but was backing early stage companies part of the strategy from, from day one? Or were you looking at larger companies at the beginning? No, it was always uh, early stage. So our thesis, which was the same it's the same now as it was then, was essentially backing entrepreneurs with digital business models that looked to transform and create resiliency inside of our financial system, right? And so it was a true, you know, system approach, not just a kind of a industry approach. In fact, we were quite allergic to the concept of fintech very early on as a word, but um, we've kind of leaned into it now because it's uh, gotten too hard not to. But we really did view our work as funding and building the companies of the future that had the ability because of technology and hopefully because of, of the entrepreneurs we backed to create opportunities for resiliency in the system and something that we thought was so incredibly needed. The three founding principles of Anthemis Group, which are alive and well today, 
were created sort of around this moment when Sean and I first um, started talking. And we knew that our business and the business and the platform that we built at Anthemis needed to continue to collaborate with the powers that be and the incumbents, that this was not going to be a sort of revolutionary moment in our industry, but instead an evolutionary opportunity for the old and the new to come together to reinvent financial services for the modern age. And that was only going to happen if we stayed very close to those companies, right? And so from very beginning, we, we really did carve out a lot of our time and energy to spend time with the big banks and with the insurance companies and the wealth managers in a way that actually made us quite valuable for them, right? They were not in those days, really understanding what digital and innovation strategy was. And so we were spending a lot of time almost consulting with them um, in that capacity. And then separately, we were getting to know the entrepreneurs that were looking to build the sort of platforms and businesses of the future. And it was, yeah, I think our first uh, investments together were actually in a company called Climate Corp, which was a weather derivatives platform um, that was eventually sold to Monsanto. Um, We seeded Zoopla, uh, the UK real estate uh, aggregator, and we uh, seeded Currency Club, um, which is obviously a big European payments play. And those were the sort of, you know, off and running we went. And we knew from the very, you know, I, I said that we kind of had that awkward moment of trying to fundraise right in the the midst of the financial meltdown. But it actually ended up being quite serendipitous for us, right? Because I think had we been able to raise money the way a traditional fintech or a traditional asset manager would have, we would not have been able to um, build the platform that we ultimately built that is the, the key to everything that is Anthemus. Because we did it with our own money. And we had to do it, you know, you take two meetings on September, whatever that date was in in New York, and you come back with your eyes wide open, recognizing that nobody really wants to hear from you probably for another year or two. And so we went back to my apartment and just literally said, okay, how much money do we have? How close, you know, what kind of angels can we entice? And let's just do this ourselves. And once we made the decision that we were doing it ourselves, we basically took off the gloves and said, okay, we're going to build what we need to support really great companies. And that meant spending money on connecting to the ecosystem of large financial institutions to keep them close, helps us fund and fuel our thesis, and also helped a really great landing spot for all of our companies if they wanted to do commercial agreements with these companies, right? Or potentially as an acquisition partner or strategic capital. And it also meant that we were going to be um, building the infrastructure that would support the success of these companies from the very beginning, right? You're backing an early stage company, seed, series A, and you, you putting money in and they're getting maybe a board member, but what they're not getting is the extra set of hands that's going to help them get from seed to A or A to B, which for an early stage entrepreneur, as you well know, is the most important thing. And that was really real for us, right? Sean and I had to prove ourselves as investors because we weren't known in the industry. And so we had to work harder than most investors when we put a check in. And that ethos really stuck with us, right? This idea that through collaboration with the industry as it existed and the new entrepreneurs, we would create really great opportunities. But in order to support those really great opportunities, we need to work pretty hard to stay connected and collectively share the access we had to this ecosystem and to everything else that we had access to for the benefit of those entrepreneurs as they were growing. Um, And that really served as the foundation of Anthemist. The other two guiding principles, just to clarify, the second was that we were focused on doing good and not evil. Our industry, as you well know, can lend itself towards easily predatory opportunities. And for us, that was a a non-starter, that we knew we could create a lot of good in the system, a lot of wealth in the system, if we did it with a virtuous cycle focus. And so it was sort of early days, you know, everybody talks about ESG now, but but an impact investing. But back then, nobody was talking about that and certainly not in financial services. The third principle was that we 
committed to doing it with a team that was significantly more diverse and inclusive than any other team on Wall Street in tech um, or frankly in, in private equity at the time and probably still today. And the Anthemis team had the view and continues to have the view that you, we have to put your own mask on first, right? That if you can't hire and bring together a diverse group of individuals for your own company, then there's no way you can advise an early stage founder to do the same. Um, and so we really felt that was important. Um, and so we built the company and a team that values that first and foremost. So it's been pretty great. And now we're 50 people around the world. And um, of those 50 people, uh, 55% are women, 65% of our investment team are female. Um, we come from 16 different countries. We speak 16 different languages. And just shy of 40% of our team uh, identifies Black, Indigenous, or people of color. I think just about 13% of our team identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and my favorite stat still is that less than 50% of us have ever worked in financial services before. So if it gives you a sense of how much we value diversity of experience and thought, in addition to all the other great things that make up uh, a wonderfully uh, diverse team. That's uh, that's outstanding, and, and kudos to you for that. When did you decide to start building from within and incubating companies? Because I, I understand that's part of your strategy as well. Yeah, so that's right. We have a venture studio strategy. Um, we deploy capital at Anthemus in three main pots. One is venture studio, which is our sort of pre-idea, ideation, sort of pre-pre-seed capital, then our seed A and B bucket, our early stage capital, and then we've got a venture growth strategy. Um, but the venture studio business was something that was always part of our initial dream, right? Because we built Anthemus not as an asset manager per se, but as an investment platform, the core you know, group structure required us to kind of dig in to sort of some of the white space ideas that we were really excited about because we had such great connectivity to the old and the new, right? So if you, you know, if you've got great relationships with all the big banks and they're telling you what they're missing and you've got this opportunity to see all the different startups out in the world, you can also appreciate that sometimes there are things missing. And what we decided to design with our venture studio was this idea that you could create those things yourself. And I tell you now, the speed at which companies go from pre-pre-seed to seed is, is so phenomenal um, that it's often very hard and tricky to find a, a strategy that hasn't been considered or thought of or done. Um, but, but our venture studio strategy has really been quite important to us from the beginning because it gives us an opportunity to really provide particularly founders of certain communities that may not have as much access to capital, access to mentoring, access to support, and support their companies in the earliest stages when it's really, you know, a kind of encourages a safe-to-try environment um, and getting them ready for market, which um, has been highly successful. And so, for example, people ask us all the time, oh, well, if you guys are so keen on diversity, why don't you have any later stage funds that just invest in women or just invest in people of color? And my answer to that has always been the same, which is, well, I'm pretty certain that, you know, I'm going to have more impact on two white dudes who don't have any women or people of color in their network than I am going to have with a woman or person of color, right? Because I think that that's already implied. And I think that that to me is important to remember that diversity, you know, does mean all, and we need to be figuring out how to support all sorts of people and with all sorts of skills and experiences. But the venture studio model for example, allows us to lean into those places where we can tell 
that there are problems in the system, right? I mean, everyone knows that the statistics, they're not good and they're not getting any better that the amount of money that's going to women in fintech, despite the fact that it is a growing hotspot for a place for people to, to work is still considerably less than is going to men, right? And I think that the US stat for venture capital generally is 2%. And if you can imagine, fintech is a you know small microscopic version of that 2%. And so we launched this venture studio with Barclays called the Female Innovators Lab. It was an opportunity to lean into a place we knew enough funding was not going in a very specific way to make sure that we could get money into the hands of women fintech innovators as early as possible and give them, in addition to capital, a significant amount of mentoring, access, and portfolio success services that would allow them to grow very securely and build a foundation really tightly before they launched into the seed stage. And those are, you know, for us, that's a big part of our strategy and we love it. We love the venture studio work. Fantastic. And, and now, so having the, I guess, the point of view of over a decade of investing in, in the industry, right, comparing from when you started to the state of the market today, right? Mm. What are some of the areas that they get you more excited these days within the space? And, and what's your take on everything that's going on? Uh, uh, with <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think if anybody had told me 10 plus years ago, quite frankly, five or even a year and a half ago, that fintech, diversity, ESG... <laughs> would be the sort of, you know, three hottest buzzwords of 2021, I would have laughed in their face, right? I mean, you know, Sean and I and the whole Anthemus team have always considered ourselves slightly, you know, left of the center, a little bit in the outsider category. And part of how we do our job really well is to remain in that outsider category. We have to be seeing things that other people aren't seeing. We have to be looking around corners that other people aren't looking around. And that's how we've always, you know, made good investments and been there before everybody. And what's been so fascinating in this last year, as if the world has just woken up to this sort of like overnight success story of fintech and all the people piling in, it's been really, really strange. And I think if I, if I have to say, you know, and I can, we can definitely talk about some of the trends, but I think one of the things that's been really heartening is, you know, making sure that this, you know, hot trend of diversity and hot trend of impact in ESG investing, even hot trend of, you know, building resiliency into the financial system, it's got to stick, right? It, it's got to be more than just a trend. If we're going to see real change in this industry, we need a lot of people focusing their attention and their capital on this sector. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm extremely bullish and incredibly welcoming to all the new entrants and to all the sort of folks that kind of now woken up to this opportunity. It also, though, because we have historically been the outsiders, um, it makes me really conscious that now our voices um, at Anthemis and the companies that we support and the people in our ecosystem are becoming even more important, right? Because we do have perspective. We do have that history. We have seen a lot right? And I think that it's our job now to lean into the insiders club a little bit more and to, yes, we're going to continue to sort of look at, at what's coming around the corner next. And we're not going to tell everybody about those things, but, 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 you know, we really do feel a sense of responsibility to the industry at large because we've had such a wonderful and unique perspective that I feel like the work that we do now is even more important than maybe it was in the last 10 plus years, right? So it's, it's one thing to be trying to convince people of a thing, 
But once you get that thing to be something that everybody buys into, the biggest problem with the innovator's dilemma is it's sort of, well, where do you go next? And, and for me, I think it comes with a certain sense of responsibility. We need to hold people accountable for a lot of the stuff that people are talking about. And, you know, if I have a dime for another, every person that talks about democratizing the world of finance, which is something that, you know, a theme that we've cared about from day one, but let's really do it. Let's democratize it, right? Let's not just talk about democratizing it and then go and take advantage of somebody on the other side of the trade, right? Because that's what's going to happen if too much money comes in too fast in the hands of people that aren't ready to responsibly transform this industry. And it's not, you know, this is, we always say that this is not, yes, there's going to be Uber-like returns and Airbnb-like returns in this industry, but the Uber moment and the Airbnb moment for financial services is very different, right? We're, we're not comparing the regulators in Europe and, and the SEC to the New York City Taxi Commission, right? Or the Tourism Commission. This is highly regulated, highly structured markets that if you do it right, and to me, doing it right means being transparent and, and really, you know, kind of looking for that way to, to democratize it amazing things can happen for everybody, right? We have, there's enough wealth to go around. We've got opportunities to share across the board. But if you do it wrong, people are going to get hurt. Real people are going to lose their money. And I really do feel that it's a incumbent on all of us participants in the markets to make sure that we're protecting everyone in the companies that we're building. And, you know, there are right ways and wrong ways to do things. And there's a roadmap for it. I'm not suggesting that the regulatory structure of this Mark of you know financial services is perfect, and I actually would say that there's a lot that needs to change, but we cannot expect that we can change it overnight, and we need to respect its current system in order to do it right. Because just cutting corners is going to hurt people, and that's not right either. Yeah, and and I think this is also something that you you've talked about elsewhere, as well as the fact that banks are not going to disappear, right? I mean, banks are are here to stay. It's not like other industries that the web has pretty much destroyed the incumbents and now it's all dominated by by the new startups. It's it's more of a co-living relationship, right? Co-habitation, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Although some of them will. I have a secret envelope that I will never share um, with my predictions for sort of some of the banks that are going to be gone in the next, you know, 10 years. But the, yeah, I agree. It's we have to work within the system to change the system. And, and that's why one of the things that we're watching very closely is the regulation um, and, and staying very close to kind of market structural issues because these are complicated issues, right? It's not as simple as just kind of a, you know, consumer product, right? It, there's, there's really interesting stuff at, at play here. And um, I think it's all of our jobs to, to pay respect for that. I, I would love to see that envelope one day. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so, Amy... What are some of the the biggest, I guess, lessons learned over the years and maybe some of the mistakes that you've made that you, you wish you would have known, right, in, in hindsight? Yeah. Ooh. Um, you know, lessons learned, and this, I think, is, is to, to remind everybody who's out there fundraising right now, fundraising is hard and it's a long, long process. And I think if you have a value system that suggests that you you know, want to work with people who are like-minded um, and like you and you sort of share your values, it can be even harder, right? Because you've got to find your tribe. And um, I think had I, had I known how long it was going to take to raise capital, I don't know that I would have done anything differently, but I probably would have spent more time and energy building up a team that could focus on that rather than sort of having to lean on ourselves because it can be exhausting. And it's hard to hear no, you know, because, I, you know, and it's, and it's even hard for us, right? We've been around for, gosh, 
close to almost 15 years investing in this space with credible track records, like multiple funds, and we still are constantly having to pitch and and ask for money and be told no. Uh, so I think I think that's I would have probably uh, backfilled a little bit around that area so that it wouldn't have exhausted us all so much. Gosh, lessons learned. I you know it's so funny because I I don't believe in life that that there are really any regrets. I think every mistake is a you know I, look I'm I, I'll tell you one thing that I'm very happy we did have the, those guiding principles that I talked about earlier. Without those, I don't know if it would have we would be where we are today because I think it was really easy when things didn't look right for us to go back to our principles and say, yeah, that's not right. Let's cut it out. Right. And if we didn't have those principles, it might've taken us a little longer to figure that out and we might've gotten lost in the process. Right. And I think, so I think anybody that's starting out, you know, I can't tell, can't emphasize enough to really figure out what you stand for and who you are before you even step out into the market because it, your, your values will be tested. And, and to me, that's the most um, important thing that I have going for me is that I, I came into this industry at 21 years old with the exact same value system that I'm leaving this industry with whenever I leave, right? And it's, you know, it can be, can be tempting to be sort of pushed one way or the other, but, but, it, but it's really important um, and it will matter. And it will matter when you least expect it to, right? Um, certainly, you know, we've made mistakes in hiring people, um, we've made mistakes and entrepreneurs we've backed, um, but from every single one of those mistakes, we've learned, right? And I think the problem is not making a mistake. It's not learning from your mistakes that is the actual problem, right? I mean, I try to encourage my kids every day that like making mistakes is how we figure things out, right? But doing it two, three, four, five, six times, it's no longer a mistake, right? Then it starts to become purposeful <laughs> ignorance. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, it's an interesting, it's one of the reasons why I love early stage VC as much as I do is that it is so much a people game. And so being able to test yourself around having good bets around people, right? Because sometimes these products, their markets, they're going to change 15 times, but the people aren't going anywhere. And so you really have to figure out how to read and back people. And that's true even when we're hiring people. Um, and, and I, you know, I think we've learned from, from some of our missteps there for sure. I, I know a couple of people that are are going to learn from your uh, fundraising reflections. <laughs> um, so just thinking about the next few years, right? Yeah. What is it that excites you the most about, first of all, about Anthemis and also about the venture capital industry? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the fact that we have, you know, quote unquote, arrived, right, that the world is paying attention to this sector and it's we're just getting started. Um, you know, our core thesis has always played a very broad you know, we have a very broad playbook of what we suggest is in scope for financial services technology. You know, this concept of embedded finance that fundamentally was at the very core of, of how we started investing, right? It's how we could justify Zoopla as a transaction as one of our first trades, right? Or even Climate Core for that matter. So we really get excited about the stuff that people aren't even paying attention to that is finance, right? And I think because of our market expertise, our structural expertise, our financial engineering expertise, as a group, we're incredibly well positioned to sort of lean into some of these industries that are relying on financial services and, and kind of underpinned by, but don't look like financial services on the tin, right? And so areas that we're super, super psyched about continue to be media, Right where we're gonna we're gonna be continuing to look for businesses like social media businesses, various other e gaming businesses where we can see the interconnectivity of how financial services plays out inside of the monetization of these businesses, currency 
you know, real, real-time currencies that, that exist inside of these gaming environments and these meta-universes, et cetera. We're really excited about healthcare and wellness as a place where we believe insurance and financial services generally um, will play a huge role in transforming the industry. And so I think, you know, we'll continue to be excited about your traditional fintech models, but the stuff that's really super exciting is the stuff that people don't even recognize are fully fintech companies. And, you know, we, we've said this from the beginning, that it's, it's hard not to, you know, when you're in our position and you understand the industry as well as we do, it's very hard not to see the fintech angle inside of, of everything. What else am I excited about? I think it's really exciting how I, I oversaw a very interesting conversation between my 11-year-old and my 16-year-old at dinner the other night where they were debating the uh, future of the game stock. And I just got really sort of kind of excited to think, wow, this is a very young time to be, gen- you know, sort of... Gen- and they were being very smart about it. They had really good ideas. I was definitely taking notes. And so I think the generational interest in the industry this early is going to serve us incredibly well. But it's also the stuff that we have to watch out for, right? Because you're getting people in who don't have the financial sophistication, in many cases don't have the financial access or the financial security to be playing games with their money. And it's our job as an industry to make sure that that stays protected. But that's exciting to me to, you know, to see these guys that are leaning in and thinking, one day they'll probably figure out that that's what I do for a living, but you know, I'll, I'll wait. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for that to happen, but, but it is great to see how enthusiastically they're, they're, you know, coming at this um, and how excited they are about this sector. That, that is an incredible story. I don't think I knew what a stock was at, even at 16. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amy, before we let you go, uh, any hobbies that you enjoy and, and that, uh, you know, you're particularly fond of? <laughs> Gosh, uh, yeah, actually, um, I'm I'm a surfer, so I I, I love surfing, um, and I love riding horses. Most of my hobbies, you know, it's interesting. We're around kind of travel with my family, and and quite frankly, it's been very strange to not have that in the last year and a half. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that. But I'm a big reader, and I think in my spare time, that's what you'll find me doing. Amazing. Well, Amy Canna, thank you enough for joining us again. Uh, always a pleasure to host you on on the Wharton FinTech podcast, and of course, I know you went to a different school, but you are a friend of Wharton, so we we do <laughs> encourage you to continue stopping by. I will do. Thanks so much, Miguel, and best of luck to you. And that if you didn't pay attention, things were going to look very different. And you hey, know mom. the oops, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. We got a we got a we got a podcast. It's all good. It's all good. (laughs) I'm actually having an interview on a a podcast. So we're going (laughs) to. Thank you, honey. (laughs) Sorry about that. No Um, worries. I'll just back up for that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 